Join me in prayer. Father, as we've sung, we gather to worship in an effort to learn how to practice our resurrection, to enter into what you have done and are still doing, taking our brokenness, putting it aside, and making something beautiful, moving all things to come fully once and for all under your lordship. Father, teach us as students of the resurrection to know what it means day in and day out to do that. And we ask that you would speak to us even now in this time, that we would hear you, that your spirit would connect with our hearts, and we would hear your truth. Spirit of the living God, speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. I'm sure by now most of you have seen the newscasts or have read an article on or somehow been made aware of the fact that within the last two weeks, a group of ISIS in Libya martyred 21 Christians. This is a screen grab from the photo that was, from the video that was released by ISIS of the actual beheadings. How many of you here have actually gone online and watched this video? A few of you. I'm not referencing it because I'm suggesting it. I just wanted to challenge myself to actually do it all the way through. They produced it, put a soundtrack together, made it all snazzy, and then released it to the world in celebration and in a call. The world doesn't really know what to do with this, though. We struggle as fellow believers. We struggle as a nation, even knowing how do we respond to these things in our midst. On the night that this story broke, we were in front of our TV sets because the NBA All-Star Game was on. And it was the week before the Oscars, so there were all kinds of shows that were guessing at what it was that the celebrities were going to be wearing the following week as they walked the red carpet. Even the NBC Nightly News that evening gave ten times as much coverage to the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary special than they did to this story. You see the name, list of the names on the next slide. Jim Daly put this out on his blog, President of Focus on the Family. And you've seen the avatar across Twitter and beyond of the 21 number that keeps popping up. I was curious to find out more about these individuals who gave their lives and what their stories looked like. Most of these men, almost all of them actually, were all about your age. They were in their early 20s, and they were young Egyptian Coptic Christians. Most of them came from impoverished villages that were averaged three to four dollars a day in income, and so they had gone to Libya in an attempt to create a better future for themselves and their family. There they encountered resistance. They were taken captive, and they were tortured for several weeks, it is assumed, by ISIS asked that they would recant the lordship of Christ and his name and their religion, and if so, they would be allowed to live. If not, they would be killed like that. They refuse. What's striking to me, though, if you actually watch the video, and again, I'm not suggesting that you do, but if you do, all the way through, the part that was the most chilling for me in this 
wasn't the hatred. It wasn't the barbarism or the lack of hesitancy on the part of this radicalized, fundamentalist people of the Islamic faith who sliced their throats and dropped them down. What struck me was the unending peace and the unwavering consistency in the faces of these young men. Who, if you listen within the video, mouth the name and sing the name of Jesus as they take their last breath, only to wake up in front of his face in the new creation. And down the line, there doesn't seem to be a loss of of just firmness and steadfastness and peace even in who they are. They don't quiver, they don't shake, they don't freak out. What is given to them in that moment is so beyond what we typically think of within our faith. And if that wasn't enough, some newscasters now have gone back and interviewed their families and asked them what it is that you have to say about your family that was killed in such a barbaric way. One of the brothers, a man by the name of Bashir Kamel, who lost two brothers in that incident, when the media asked him, what is your first response, this is what he said. He thanked the murderers for not editing the name of Jesus out in the video when it finally was released on the internet. Thirteen of those young men came from the same village a small town, a poor town that had already known struggle and suffering, when asked what it is that they thought about this incident, they said, we are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs. One of the newscasters then went on further and asked, well, how has your mother received this news? And he relayed what his mother had said When asked what she would do if she ever met the man who had beheaded her own son, she said, he quotes, My mother, an uneducated woman in her 60s, said that she would ask him to enter her house and ask God to open his eyes because he was the reason her son entered the kingdom of heaven. Who would have an ounce of gratitude for such a moment? The one who has hope. Hope of something real and eternal that cannot be taken. That realizes that even in death we live. At the very end of this video, this is the screen grab that takes place. If you go to the next one here. A message signed with blood to the nation of the cross. Oh, that we would be worthy of that name. Nation of the cross. And I don't just mean us as a nation, I mean us as the new Israel, the new humanity, the people who are sharing in the resurrection of Christ day in and day out. That we would be known as people of the cross, of enemy love, of life transformation, not only for ourselves, but for all who would come in our midst. Who would have a faith that is so steadfast that even that which is dearest to us is taken, still our gratitude runs so deep, so deep, that it's the first thing that comes out of our mouth. How do you cultivate a faith that is so deep within you that when you are cut to the bone, that's what bleeds out of you? Oh, that we would be the nation of the cross, worthy of a name like that. There are all kinds of questions that we have to be asking as Christians right now about what we are seeing in the world. Of what is our responsibility as the nation of the cross? to our brothers and sisters who are suffering. 
This morning, I want to ask you one. Where does faith like that come from? Perhaps that might be the greatest way to honor those sacrifices of those who are martyred today. Where does faith like that come from? How do you cultivate it? Something happened in the upbringing of those young men that by the time that they were your age, even in the midst of torture and suffering, they would not let go of the one thing that they believed held them together at the core of their being and held them for all eternity. So how do you get there? Where does it come from? As you all well know, this semester in chapels, we're asking questions, right? Questions that were posed to faculty over Christmas break, questions that were posed to you and to alumni. The question that was asked of you as students was what are the big questions in life that you're asking right now that you don't believe are being answered in your college education? You can see your answers in the graph up here. What I want to do in chapel this morning, though, is point out one, what I think is the biggest inconsistency in the results that we saw back between the questions you're asking and the questions that those who have gone before are telling you you should be asking. They're kind of calling you out. Faculty, look at the number one answer that ran away with this. Your faculty, your teachers, the people who are trying to shape your minds and your hearts are saying the biggest thing, run away, that you need to be preparing for, and the questions you need to be asking is, how am I going to live in this world? When my faith is challenged and I walk out the door, when I find my place in God's world and learn to engage the world and the culture around me with the truths of Christ and this degree that I now have, how do I do it? How do I hang on? Perhaps those who have walked the road a little further than you have know how hard that can be. And so they want you to be asking those questions. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody's blaming you. You can't know what you don't know. And you haven't been where you haven't been. But this is the beauty of the intergenerational nature of Christian community is those who have walked further have the opportunity. And I think if our faculty, or if you go to the next one too, the alumni here, I think three out of those top four answers all have to do again with how are you going to engage the world by the time you leave here? And they're saying these are the questions you need to be asking the questions you were asking at the top of the list is, did I get my major right? Am I finding my own calling? And wow, am I ever worried about marriage and relationships? And these are legitimate concerns, but you notice that those same things don't come up again on the other side, near the tops of the list. So I think this is the single biggest inconsistency, incongruency between what those who have gone before are saying you should be asking and what you're asking. Does that make sense? So... If we want to listen to those who've gone before and trust their wisdom in this, what are the questions we should be asking? How do you get a faith to take root that deeply? You see, each of us have seen people who've gone before, and we see those we look up to in the Christian community, and we see those we want to emulate in their faith, and even in our own lives and in our own imagination, there is always this chasm between who we are and who who we feel we are called to be in Christ. And there are all kinds of ways that that chasm can be breached. At least we think so. More often than not, we try somehow to either muster up enough strength that we would just simply be able to launch and jump across it ourselves. Maybe we attempt to build the bridge or put the pieces in place that will get us to the person we are supposed to be.
In this passage, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this movement between not only our salvation but our sanctification and how it is that we move and grow. How it is that the chasms are breached. We always put this passage up on the screen, but maybe if you want to receive this a different way, not only is this as Paul's letter to the church as Ephesus, but it's something that God's sharing with you as well. Close your eyes and just receive this. Just hear God's word for you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And when God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There are a few pieces within this passage I want to point out and go back to with you. If you've ever listened to me talk long enough on anything in Paul's letters, I have a favorite word in the New Testament. It comes up in this passage in 2 verse 5. It's also the only other place it happens in scriptures in Colossians 2.13. Made alive with Christ. This is the word that didn't exist in the ancient world and Paul invented it to describe what Jesus did because nobody else had even a framework for what Christ is actually doing in this moment. He invents language. It's all one word. Sunazoapoyesin. To be made alive together with, in the passive, done for you and to you, not of your own work. It is an act of grace on your behalf in Christ Jesus. You were made alive together with. And listen to the first whole part of this passage, the declarations that is spoken over you. This is who you are. The breaching of the chasm is a realization and an awareness and a moving into and a, a movement towards a fuller surrender of what God wants to do within us. It's not what God is asking us to do for him or to pay him back. It is a fuller surrender to what it is that he wants to do within us. This is the movement of sanctification. This is how God grows us. This is how we breach the chasm. Through his work. One of the books I've been reading through, through this passage, I've quoted a few times already, John Ortberg's The Me I Want to Be. He talks in that book about the fact that you can no more, as a Christian, bring about self-improvement than you can bring about self-salvation. And that's what comes through in this passage, isn't it? That just in the same way as your salvation came by grace, so too your sanctification does. Here's another line. So often, I've done this in my own life, you've probably done this too, one day or when this happens or next week I'll start, 
And I notice that every time I've ever done that, whenever I've waited for the circumstances to change, it ends up becoming something that doesn't change within me. When I feel the Spirit's voice prompting and provoking me to do something new, to move to a greater place of surrender, and whenever I'm waiting for the stars to align around me first, or when I say, well, when I graduate, or next year when I'm a senior, then I'll hear John Ortberg's wisdom on this one. I don't want to wait for circumstances to change in order to live the way I was meant to live. I just have to want it more than I want anything else. When the historic Christian church has talked about implementing Christian disciplines in our life, that's really all that that movement is about. It is designed to bring about the realignment of our priorities. Spiritual disciplines are designed to exercise the muscle memory of our heart. To do whatever it takes so when moments like what those martyrs endured come, it is so deep within us. One of the best spiritual practices I ever had was given to me as a kid my fourth grade teacher who for memory work would make us come up and sing hymns in front of her. The darkest moments of my life, the hardest things I've ever been through, I have pulled back on those moments again and again and again. And those songs and those lyrics from the church that has gone before has given me strength in a way I could never simply stand on my own two feet and achieve. Disciplines build the muscle memory of our heart. Discipline is the realignment of where we are askew. I had a conversation about this with John yesterday, and he was talking about a practice he used to do when he was doing premarital counseling at a church in Sioux Falls, that when a couple would come in, one of the exercises he would do with them would ask them to write down what are the stated priorities in your life and your relationship, and then people would do it. And we all know how to answer that question, and it usually sounds like a whole lot of Christianese. But then he would have said he would ask them, now write down what you've all done in the past week each day and in the time and in your schedules. And now put these two things side by side. And then we realize that the things that we say we want to be aren't reflected in the things that we're doing in our life. And I think one of the greatest spiritual practices we can go through is to embark on a process like that. I want you to answer those things in your head even right now. What are the top stated priorities in your life? What do you want to be moving towards? Who is God calling you to be? And when the things that we are actually doing with our time and our lives and our relationship aren't reflecting that, that's when a discipline gets put in place in the meantime. Because it's an acknowledgement of God, I have a divided heart. The new me that I am in you, the resurrection that I'm called to practice is calling me to cross that. And I know that you want to do that work and you're knocking on my calloused heart. And I'm asking you to take me to a place of greater surrender and trust because I obviously just haven't trusted you enough. I'm still banking on me and my wisdom and I need to die to myself that I might rise again with you in this. I am still my great defender and I've not trusted fully in you. Disciplines acknowledge the fact that our hearts are divided. That our values are inconsistent with the way that we are spending our time. As I even say these things, what's happening inside of you right now? What is the spirit poking at your heart and telling you, this is where I want you. This is what you gotta give up. This is where I'm calling you to fuller surrender. This is a sin I just need to set you free from if you will let me. This is a fruit that I'm dying to promote and bring about in your life. 
This is a gift that I want to bestow upon you. I want to breach that chasm to take you to be the person I'm calling you to be if you will let me in. So the movement of growth in the Christian life is not one of gaining strength. It is one of greater surrender. You don't need to get stronger. You just need to get spongier. You need to become a greater absorber of the grace of God in order for him to take us. Because all the promises and passages like this, God takes all the verbs and puts them on himself. I will do it. I have already done it. This is the reality. If you will let me let work it into your life. Those 21 men, somewhere along the line, let that work into their hearts. And everybody older than you is telling you that you're going to hit points in life that are coming where you're going to need that. So they're saying what you should be doing now is thinking about realigning the priorities. What are your stated values? And what does your life say about those? For anyone watching from a distance that could see you, could they name your priorities by looking at your schedule? By looking at your checkbook? By watching you interact with friends? Or your boyfriend or girlfriend? When we feel like there's a disconnect there, that's the place where the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I want more of your heart because I have an abundance for you that you have not yet known. And you were called to full abundance in me. And I will do it for you, God says. All I will do is convict you. And then if you will but let me in, I will do it. Out of all the questions we face and all the things we struggle with, I would say I have learned at least this in life. That when I am just in passionate pursuit of simply being close with the Lord, all the other questions just seem to find a way to work themselves out. If we can get that, and if you can move that on your priority list and realign some pieces in your schedule to make those things come together, it's going to start working its way deeper into you so when those moments come, the name of Jesus is still getting sung off your lips in whatever trial Christ will call you to. May it be the song of your heart and the testament of your lives. May it stand for you in your darkest hour and carry you through the deepest hardship. May it give you the greatest joy and a peace that people will find peculiar about you. May it define you. It has already been spoken over you. Receive it all the way in. You please pray with me. Father, we're reminded again in your word of exactly how much of our lives that you want, and it is total and complete surrender. Only so that you can give our lives back to us more full and more beautiful than anything we could create. You are the most generous and the most giving. You are merciful and compassionate. And Father, in our own practice of resurrection, we are learning to trust you in this. Father, even in this moment now, point out our inconsistencies where we've trusted us and not you. 
call us to a new surrender, to a greater freedom, to the truer version of us that you made us for, the workmanship you had in mind when you put us together, called us yours, and died for us. Father, for all these things, we give you thanks, and we ask that you would do a work in us, as you've promised you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and receive a blessing going into your day? Beloved of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, your life is designed to be a workmanship of His, of His. Rest in His strength. Stand in His presence. Be the overflow of His Spirit. Be made new again today as you learn to share in the resurrection that is yours. In Christ Jesus. Amen.